Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. Uh, the headlines in the uh, Chicago trip. I'm just going to pull this one out. We're not going to be talking about this at all, but I think this will bring a smile to uh, the face of my distinguished guests. Here's the headlines. Coronas, coronas, coronavirus outbreak. We've been waiting for this day. Uh, 18 million kids under five eligible for Pfizer Moderna vaccines. My distinguished guest goes, about time. (laughs) 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 Not a second too soon. Uh, So uh, distinguished guests, introduce yourself. We have a lot to talk about. Well, thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, uh, contributing writer at The Week and now at Newsweek, I think, and um, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How to F- How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And I already have an appointment for my four-year-old to uh, get his first dose of the vaccine on, on Sunday. Very excited about that. Long overdue. Yeah, we, we've been talking uh, COVID-19 uh, with David Ferris uh, for a long time and the frustrations of having a youngster in the house, and I mean a youngster, youngster, uh, and uh, I I can't imagine all the stress and turmoil. Uh, I'm going through it uh, as a grandfather with my uh, grandkids, but uh, man, you've lived it. All right, uh, I know a lot of you listeners out there are going to want to hear uh, David Ferris on the subject of the January 6th insurrection investigation. Uh, we're not going to do that today, just uh, let you know, uh, because we're in the middle of the hearings. I figure a wrap-up uh, the next time David's on the show uh, will be um, just so appropriate. But uh, So we'll get to that, but that's not on our agenda today. Uh, two things that are top of the agenda to discuss, uh, David. One, uh, it was your suggestion, and it was a really good one because I haven't talked about it yet. Uh, the Republican Party platform out of Texas. Folks, in my humble opinion, the Republican Party has officially, it's official, lost its freaking mind. We'll take the deep dive in that. David Ferris is one of the few men in America who's actually read the Republican Party platform, 
uh, for which he's going to need psychiatric uh, assistance uh, sometime soon. And then uh, your uh, brilliant essay in Newsweek about Saudi Arabia, the politics of Joe Biden, President Joe Biden going to Saudi Arabia, uh, obviously in an attempt to get more gas, Saudi gas, so it will drive down uh, the price. As if this is something um, as simple as supply and demand, people. Never learn. We will never learn. And then as a bonus, we're going to give uh, David Ferris a tryout. Uh, let's see, uh, his expertise as a baseball analyst. We do a lot of baseball talk in this show. And if he passes the tryout, if he passes the audition, he may get a promotion. <laughs> Just teasing. All right. Uh, let's start. Uh, with the Republican Party platform out of Texas, David, utter freaking madness. Uh, you read it. Why don't you give uh, folks just an opening riff summary of how Republicans in Texas see the world? Yeah, so I encourage you to go and read it yourselves. Uh, I don't say this lightly because I've read some deranged things in my life, but this document is the craziest thing I've ever laid eyes on in my entire life. So, um, it's uh, it's the product of a weekend-long convention in Texas. So while the rest of us were observing uh, Juneteenth, the Texas Republicans were um, uh, recommending repealing the Voting Rights Act uh, at their party convention. And this is not the work of, like, eight weirdos, right? This was 5,100 people um, at an in-person gathering representing, um, you know, all, all of the delegates to the to the Texas Republican Party. This is a, this is a, real, uh, a real document that... that um, is of course not legally binding, but does but does guide the the Texas Republican Party philosophically. So, um, the the best words I could use it to to describe it is just deeply radical and reactionary document. Um, very far right positions on on um, so called cultural issues like um, you know abortion and um, and gay rights and uh, other other things in that like trans rights, really crazy stuff about. Um, trans individuals and uh, gun rights, you know, basically calls for the abolition of any restrictions on firearms whatsoever, um, uses the term uh, constitutional carry, which is a which is a just a, a nightmare idea that's being normalized on the right. Um, and politically, among many other things, <laughs> this document calls for the abolition of the direct election of U.S. senators, um, replacing that by going back to the having them appointed by state legislatures. Um, it calls for uh, uh, appointing statewide elected officials in Texas via a mini electoral college um, rather than having them directly elected. Uh, it calls on the Texas, uh, tells us in the state of Texas to ignore um, uh, n n or nullify any laws coming from the federal government that it does not like or that it believes infringes upon its 10th Amendment rights. <laughs> And um, probably the one that got the most headlines is uh, it does call for the state of Texas to hold a referendum to secede from the United States in 2023, the 2023 general election in Texas. Kind of weird because I don't. <laughs> it's an off-year election. You want to you want to secede from the you want to you want to secede in an off-year election with like 18 percent turnout. Okay, man, that's cool. But that's the that's the position. It's like it wants the state legislature to, to affirm Texas's right to secede from the union. Um, and then to and then to, to hold a referendum. Presumably, if the Texas Republican Party wants the referendum, then they also want to secede. Uh, I guess to rush back into the arms of Donald Trump. And that the 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 document does call the it refers to acting President Biden. <laughs> and 
uh, of course, calls his election illegitimate and, um, you know, just uh, just crazy, just crazy top bomb. There's 275 planks in this thing, so, you know, we're not going to be able to get to them all. But uh, they're they're all pretty they're all pretty nuts. I mean, it's it's really um, it's it seems like the product of um, like a Unabomber type person, like a single person who has lost all contact with with reality. But in reality, but it's a it's the product of the largest um, state Republican Party in in the country. The I think the ideological center of gravity um, for the Republican Party is produced in Texas. And uh, we're going to do a lot of laughing at this document in the coming days and probably on this show. But it's also it's a really dangerous development that, um, that, that the Texas Republican Party has been radicalized in, in quite this way. Um, it's, just, it's, uh, it's both hilarious and terrifying to read. <laughs> uh, no, it, that's really well put. It, it's so bizarre and twisted. It's funny, uh, but it's scary. And in fact, this is a total tangent, but this pops into my mind. And I have to ask you this question. Because I've asked a lot of guests this, it's relevant, related, I should say. Um, so the strategy that Democrats have pursued uh, to support the gubernatorial candidacies of the wackiest nutcases that the Republican Party uh, can come up with on the grounds that um, they'll be easier to defeat in a statewide uh, election. We've seen it right here in the state of Illinois, uh, where the Democrats have poured in uh, literally millions of dollars uh, to, in a bizarre way, support the candidacy of Darren Bailey, State Senator Darren Bailey. And it looks like it might work. It looks like Darren Bailey will win the Republican nomination and go up against J.B. Pritzker. And every Democratic strategist that uh, comes that I talk to uh, tells me, Ben, this is the polls show that it's easier for Pritzker to defeat Bailey, uh, that Ken Griffin won't kick in money for Bailey, uh, and they have all their reasons. I don't like the strategy, David. Feel free to disagree with me if you do. I don't like it because I take serious uh, the uh, the danger of the rhetoric of people like Darren Bailey and people uh, like uh, Mastriano and and uh, Pennsylvania and the Republicans in Texas. What's your thought about this strategy that the Democrats have embraced? I don't like it at all. Um, and the reason I don't like it is I feel like we should have learned our lesson in 2016 um, that that Republicans going with the with the worst, most comically inept and unqualified person um, does not necessarily mean that we are going to win the election. Um, and, you know, D Donald Trump is a far more preposterous figure than than even Darren Bailey is. Um, he became president of the United States. And, um, uh, you know, for, for Illinois Democrats, yeah, look, they are probably right, okay? I, I do think that Darren Bailey will lose to J.B. Pritzker by a considerable margin. But I don't have a lot of polling to, to base that on. I don't think anybody does, really. And, um, you know, if things get bad enough nationally for Democrats, Illinois c can be a competitive state where Republicans can win statewide office, Um and, and just because the last two Republicans to win statewide office were relatively moderate by the standards of today's Republican Party, you know, Bruce Rauner and, and, and Mark Kirk, does not mean that the state is incapable of, of, uh, of voting for, um, you know, like a complete lunatic like Darren Bailey, especially if turnout is as low as it might be if, if Democrats are so demoralized by the general state of things that they don't show up. Um, and so to me... I, the risk of a Richard Irvin governorship, as unpleasant as that would be, really pales in comparison to the risk of a Darren Bailey governorship. And I don't understand why the state party would be working so so feverishly <laughs> towards elevating someone like that. Because it's not like it's you're not just taking the risk that he wins, right? You are you are actively helping 
the most retrograde faction of the Illinois Republican Party consolidate its power over the Illinois GOP. And, you know, in a two-party system, Ben, at some point or another, maybe not, maybe not this year, but at some point they're going to win a statewide election. And if you, if you don't want that person to be someone like Darren Bailey, you don't work on his behalf. Um, I, I just think that this whole strategy is, is, uh, is just really out there. Um, go after, you know, let the Republicans nominate whoever they want and then go after that person. Um, if, if that's Richard Urban, then you run against Richard Urban. You know, I, mean, I happen to think J.B. Pritzker has a decent record to run on um, and, uh, and, and he, should, he should win. But, um, you know, let, let the voters decide that. Don't, don't, don't weigh in on behalf of the craziest candidate in the race thinking that you're going to win. Look, Georgia looks like it's set to send Herschel Walker to the Senate, right? Um, Herschel Walker is not well. Like, he can barely speak in complete sentences. Um, like many, many people who played in the NFL, he probably has some sort of degenerative brain disease. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's, it's like toss up race against Raphael Warnock. Okay. I mean, are you kidding me? People will do, people are capable of a lot of things and they, and the people of Illinois are certainly capable of putting Darren Bailey in office. That is well put. And especially that line about encouraging, encouraging the Republican party, uh, to move even further, right. Or, uh, subsidizing, the seizure of the Republican Party by the most radical right. I just think in terms of civilization and humanity, forget whether who J.B. Pritzker is reelected. It is utter insanity. Same thing in Pennsylvania. Uh, and I'm going to tie two elements of our conversation together. To me, this is the political equivalent of Tony LaRusso ordering an attentional uh, walk with two strikes and a batter. It's the strategist thinking too much. We'll get to that. But I think sometimes Democratic strategists think they're so smart. They're the smartest person who ever lived, and they got it all figured out. And uh, then they look, are they, they're poor. Does that, doesn't that sound like the Hillary Clinton campaign where the smartest people in the room, and we got it all figured out? Uh, all right, let's go back to Texas after that b- brief tangent. And let's talk about uh, the. There's so much uh, to talk about. I guess we should cover abortion, uh, guns, and the election. I think I'll do that. Forget for the moment seceding from the country. <laughs> let's just put that secession from the country. Uh, the declaration that uh, Joe Biden is not is not our president uh, is a confirmation uh, that the lie told by Donald Trump. Uh, has just taken control of the Republican Party. I find that particularly frightening uh, in regards to the state of democracy, small d, in the United States. What's your thoughts? Oh, yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, (laughs) I I think we've all just been watching in horror over the last few years as, uh, as this sort of baseless conspiracy theory has become, uh, you know, first sort of watching the creeping takeover and then it was mainstream and now it's like you know uh it's obligatory for a republican to endorse this conspiracy theory if they want to win any any office anywhere in the land of the united states in a, in a republican primary um and the I, I really find the language that they used to be really chilling you know um so it's <laughs> we reject the certified results of the 2020 presidential election um, it says the various secretaries of state illegally circumvented their state legislatures in conducting their elections in multiple ways, um, including by allow, allowing ballots to be received after November 3rd, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and of course, there's the uh, election fraud in quote key metropolitan areas, right? Read black people, um, and so it's just um, it's like the whole Republican Party is having this collective hallucination, and the leadership of the party thought that they could control it, right? If you if you think back to November 2020 and the days after the election, um, you know these off the record comments to reporters by people, you know, uh, like, well, we're just kind of we're just letting we know he lost, right? But we're just letting Trump like work some stuff out in public. Uh, right, like we, you know, everybody knows that this is over, um, but we can't go out and denounce it because, because Trump, right? Because Trump would then drop the hammer on us, and we've gone from you know Republicans off the record saying, "I know this is ridiculous," to you know the largest state Republican party in the country uncritically endorsing the entire conspiracy theory and saying that he's he's not the legitimately elected president of the United States. They screened that ridiculous Dinesh D'Souza movie three times at the Texas convention um, that, you know, that says that there were, you know, thousands of, of mules collecting ballots to, to deliver fraudulently. Like, uh, it just, the people have lost all contact with reality. Um, and it's, it, to me, at this point, it's not, it's not just about Donald Trump, right? Like, Donald Trump's, if this is a 40-page document, Donald Trump's not going to get past page one because he's too stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like they could have put whatever they wanted on page 40 he would never see it right yeah. this is about right this is this goes far beyond donald trump at this point this is about the republican party of the united states of texas of every state in the in the country at this point including presumably ours the rejection of electoral democracy right the, the rejection of the people's right to rule um in a in a free and fair election in which one person has one vote um, you can see that in all the machinations in this document, um, sort of diluting the power of the people of Texas to directly elect their representatives. Like, why do you want to go back to the state legislature appointing U.S. senators? Um, the answer is that the state legislature is so heavily gerrymandered that it will always be Republican. And so the two senators from Texas will always be Republican, um, even if the even if the transformation of Texas continues. Um, ironically, I don't think Democrats are really even that close to taking Texas over. Right? Like we lost by five points and, and millions of votes in, in November 2020 in the best possible political environment for us. Um, but they're so terrified of that ever happening that they want to entrench authoritarian minority rule for all time. And that's what when you gerrymander the state legislature, that is, um, you know, you, you draw the district lines in a way that disadvantage your opponents. You make it functionally impossible for Democrats to, to take over the state legislature, then you make it functionally impossible for a Democrat to ever represent the state of Texas um, in the United States Senate. And there's a word for that. It's called tyranny. That's not democracy. That's not what democracy is. Um, and for all of the, like, you know, completely nutso stuff about abortion and guns, which we'll get to, the, the overarching, the big picture here, Ben, um, is that the Republican Party has drifted so far away from its commitment to liberal democracy um, that it, it no longer really exists in the same universe as the Democratic Party. For all the, for all the times we've complained about Democrats, <laughs> I said, I've got a lot more in me. Um, Democrats are committed to, to, to democracy, right? Like to the idea that the people should be able to elect their representatives and to change change their leadership, and that those people should have control of the agenda. Um, and Republicans no longer believe that. I mean, that's that's the um, that's the lesson of the last two years. Uh, we are on the verge of, of handing power back to an authoritarian cult. Um, as they used to say in Middle East politics, one person, one vote, one time. Right? The Republicans in, intend to take power in 2022 and 2024 and then change all the rules so that they, could, they literally can never lose again. Yeah. That's what's coming. Wow. And how, 
much as uh, how possible is it, could, given this, the current makeup in Texas, uh, that these proposals get passed in the law? In other words, uh, making uh, many electoral colleges throughout the state to determine who is the statewide office holder, which again would maximize Republican advantages, presumably, uh, because uh, rural counties would then have more voting, uh, a greater voting strength than uh, urban counties. So, how close are they to passing it into law? I would like to say that it's preposterous <laughs> because. There is Supreme Court doctrine saying that you, you can't have um, unequal representation in, in your in your districts and things like that. But I, I'm not aware of any explicit legal doctrine preventing states from uh, electing their legislatures in, in this fashion. I mean, if the Electoral College is legal, if you can have it in the U.S., why couldn't you have it in Texas? Um, I, I happen to think that a lot of these proposals would not be especially popular in Texas. Um, and, uh, but it doesn't matter because Republicans run the show. Now the like things like the direct things that are about federal issues, you know, the, the direct election of senators and things like that, like Republicans can call for <laughs> repealing the 17th amendment all they want, but it, it, it's not, it's not going to happen, right? Like Texas can't just unilaterally decide to change the way that they elect senators. That's, that's now in the U S constitution by an amendment. Um, that the U.S. senators are, are directly elected by a vote of the people of, these, of the states. Um, so there, there is a there's an element running through this document of like weird detachment from the constitutional reality of the U.S. Um, but when it comes to to how Texans govern themselves, um, I think that they're it's not just that they're thinking about it; they've already done some of these things. Um, you know, for for example, abortion, which the document says. Um, in this incredible phrase, let me let me go back, scrolling back up the forty-page document. Ben, I have a PDF <laughs> on my computer. I need to. Can I? Is it possible to put your laptop through the wash? Because I feel like <laughs> it's been dirty. Yes, very filthy right now. Uh, I quote: "The sanctity of innocent human life, created in the image of God, which should be equally protected from fertilization to natural death." Okay, um, and that means um, the essentially creating the you know right to life for unborn persons uh, that is fetal personhood as they call it um, and uh, and that probably excludes all forms of birth control the you know the morning after well, what, what what we're calling it these days that's probably not the way people want me to call it um, but uh, you know plan B things like that um, so to say nothing of abortion right which which is um, the Texas GOP wants outlawed and criminalized in the way that they have already done um, but the, but the document goes further, right? Like um, the, the Texas law is whatever, we heartbeat, right, six weeks. Um, and this document just wants the whole thing, just boom, done. So um, it's, it's, um, it's, a really, it's a really radical social document in, in that respect, um, not just about abortion, but about all kinds of LGBTQ issues and um, you know, stuff exclusive to trans uh, individuals and uh, just, really, just really scary stuff. Frightening stuff, and uh, the notion that uh, a fertilized egg is a life uh, is—I just wow! It's just that is um, that's 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 really a, an attempt to sort of uh, just end the discussion right now, and that's all there is to it. And it doesn't matter how the egg got fertilized, rape, incest, what have you. They don't care. Uh, doesn't doesn't matter. It's 
You're delivering uh, that baby into the world, whether you like it or not. Very strange position uh, that they've charted. Uh, and so your thoughts on how this plays with the public as a whole. Do you think this is where America is right now on the issue of abortion, or do you think uh, this is radical for America? This is radical for America. I mean, I think it's radical for Texas, um, right? Like, I, I'm sure that there's a majority in Texas for uh, more restrictive abortion laws than the ones that are that are um, in Roe v. Wade, okay? Um, I'm, I'm guessing that there's a majority for you know, a less permissive abortion regime. Do I think that there's a majority in Texas for defining life as beginning at the, the moment of fertilization and, and, and criminalizing everything afterwards? No, I don't think so. Certainly not in the U.S. Um, this is a document that is socially deeply out of step with where the American people are. Um, there's, you know, overwhelming majorities, super majorities, um, approve of things like, like gay marriage, right? Um, majorities of Americans consistently say um, that, that trans individuals should be treated equally. Um, now, when you drill down, right, like there's the Republicans are so good at finding these little wedge issues, right? Like, um, you know, to, to trans women competing in uh, women's sports, stuff like that. There you find the public opinion is a little bit more complicated. OK, um, but the but the baseline sort of like attempt, I think, to, to criminalize a lot of this behavior um, and criminalize people's identities and prevent teachers from talking about it, all this stuff. I don't think there's majority for that at all. I think that what's happening right now is that the Republican Party sees this historic opportunity, right? Like people are not unhappy with the economy. They're unhappy with inflation. They're mad about gas prices, Grr, gas prices. Um, I don't like the gas prices either, Ben. I'm not happy about it, but I, I'm certainly not willing to sacrifice my right to change the government <laughs> because the gas prices are too high. Um, but Republicans are gambling, and I'm not sure that they're wrong, um, that people will be so focused on... Um, their economic dissatisfaction, that they will look past a lot of this stuff, probably thinking, you know, they'll never do that. Like, that's nuts, <laughs> right? Um, only to find when Republicans take power that that is, in fact, what they want to do. Um, and this this mania that has taken over the Republican Party um, about about education and parents' rights and education, like, give me a break, man. You can, you can barely get, in a normal times, you can barely get five parents to show up at a parent meeting at a school. You know what I mean? Like the idea that parents care what's happening in their schools is just is just absurd, right? Um, and ask any teacher, ask any teacher in Illinois, like you know, uh, like I think uh, it's just it's just it's just crazy, right? Um, it's, and it's like no wonder that people don't want to go into public education right now. Uh, they don't want to be a, a, a you know a punching bag for the for the craziest people in America to accuse them of all sorts of bananas things and then criminalize you know criminalize them for talking about the idea of being gay. Um, it's just nuts. So no, the answer to your question is no, this is not where America is. This is not where Texas is. But if we do not wake up and start fighting back against some of this stuff, focus on the 22 election, um, and do everything that we can to minimize the damage or maybe even win, you know, this stuff is coming national, right? Like I, this idea that this is just, I mean, obviously secession stuff, that's Texas. Okay. <laughs> but everything else in that document from the election conspiracy to the abortion bans, to the attacks on LGBTQ people, um, to, to uh, you know, changes to our constitutional order to make it more difficult to change the government. Um, that is all 100% mainstream Republican positioning right now, nationally. And the way this works is the crazy, you know, the craziest ideas become mainstream when the leadership mainstreams them, okay? 
And if, if Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy are not willing to speak out against this stuff, um, if they think they're just going to sweep it under the rug and, and get back to cutting taxes, they're idiots. Okay, um, they're they're then complicit in the takeover of the National Republican Party by people like this, and that's that's what's coming. It's very 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 dangerous, um, and uh, you know we we got to we got to do everything we can to stop these people from winning, man. And <laughs> so, uh, as I do from time to time, I'm just going to take uh, one make one just. Difference with you and what you and that great riff you just went on. I think you probably agree with me. Secession talk is pretty much exists in the Republican Party in every state. Here in Illinois, there's secession talk where the uh, the rightest, uh, reddest uh, portions of the state, including Darren Bailey, has backed secession. Have talked about seceding from the state. Really, a seceding from any state that has Chicago in it. I've heard talk like that from Republicans in Montana and Idaho and Oregon. Uh, and, um, so I think that's part of the, the madness and I would urge all Democrats everywhere to follow David Ferris's advice. And from now until election day, call it out for the insanity that it is and hold all Republicans accountable for it. That is the only way in my humble opinion, David, that one, the Democrats can, um, hold on to Congress uh, and two, just as important, start pushing, pushing the center, the mainstream, a little more away, just a little more away from Donald Trump. Because every time the Republicans do this, funded by Democratic dollars, I'll point out one more time, Democrats who are supporting Darren Bailey, every time they do this, they push the conversation further to the right. And I, and I was pleased that uh, Governor Pritzker, when he went to New Hampshire, I don't know if you saw this a couple of days ago, looks like he's just making sure everybody remembers his name. Um, should Joe Biden not run in 2024? Uh, he he took the, it, it was like he studied your playbook and he was talking about uh, radical Republicans uh, and the lunacy. So I, I hope other Democrats do that uh, from here on out. All right, let's go to the guns. Uh, you mentioned, what was the phrase you used? Constitutional arms, is that what the phrase was? Constitutional uh, Say that constitutional carry. Explain what that is. Um, that's your right to uh, carry a concealed firearm or or openly carry a firearm on you at all times, right? Like in the state of, uh, you've, I'm sure you and your listeners have seen these pictures of people like walking into a Target with an AR-15 strapped to their back, um, which is thank God not legal in the state of Illinois. Um, Texas Republicans want there to be a constitutional right. For any um, any citizen to openly carry a firearm and to to conceal it, to carry it openly, right, without any kind of permitting, um, like the Texas Republican Party believes that um, not just that we should not have new restrictions on guns, but the but the the pitiful like minimal restrictions that we do have in some states um, should be repealed. Um, they oppose any efforts uh, happening at the national level right now to tighten up our our gun policies even a little bit. I mean, the bipartisan deal that they're talking about in Congress for uh, for guns is is just like laughably inadequate, right? But it is like um, better than nothing. But it is it is this inadequate half measure has like riled up the Texas GOP so much um, that they uh, and, and at the end there's a resolution tacked on to the end of this thing. It says, whereas all gun control is a violation of the Second Amendment and our God-given rights, we reject the so-called bipartisan gun agreement. It also claims that people under 21 are most likely to be victims of violent crime and thus most likely to need to defend themselves. Um, 
you know, which is a direct attack on the on the sort of the sociological reality that so much of our gun violence is committed um, by people, you know, by young adults, young adult men mostly, um, and the, the, so there's some efforts in Congress to try to impose additional restrictions on people under the age of 21 buying a gun. Like, it's doesn't that strike you as a little bit bananas that people under the age of 25 functionally cannot rent a car? Um, but can go and buy and buy buy a you know a, a weapon that would mow down a British regiment you know with no waiting period yeah. <laughs> in the state of Texas. I, I I I think it's insane on both ends. I don't know why you have to be 25 to rent a car. I'm not quite sure what the logic is there. Uh, probably insurance uh, if I know. But then it's even more illogical because the same impulse that would uh, motivate an insurance company not to. Uh, insure a car driven by a 25 year old who's probably can't be dependent on to show sound judgment why would that go out the window when allowing said person to buy a gun if you don't think he's got sound if the actuarial tables by the smartest insurance people in the world show that you don't have sound judgment when you're under 25 why would you want to give that guy a gun so yes it makes no sense any way you look at it uh all right, so here's where do you think the country is on this issue? I think the country wants tighter gun laws. You know, I, I think that there's not a majority to repeal the Second Amendment or anything like that. Um, but I think that there is a consensus that our gun laws should be more restrictive than they currently are. Now, what more restrictive means may differ from person to person. You know, um, I think that there is a public opinion majority for a ban on assault weapons. Um, and that's, you know, you say assault weapons in like a right wing space and they're like, that's a crazy, that just doesn't mean anything. You say assault weapons, it means you don't know anything about guns. And I'm like, you're right. I don't know anything about guns. I just don't like them. Um, and I, I want a few of them, a fewer of them on the streets. And I don't want to uh, have to walk into a diner worrying if someone's going to gun down the entire, uh, uh, you know, everyone eating their burgers and stuff. Like, it just seems like when, let's not do that. Um, let's not sell certain kinds of weapons. Um, I, I don't think that you're going to get handguns and, you know, traditional hunting rifles out of people's hands, um, not in my lifetime anyway, um, and nor do I, I know, it's fine. I, I, would like, I would like to live in a country where individuals cannot bear arms, full stop. I don't live in that country, right? If I want to live in that country, i got to move to it. And, uh, but I do think that there's a public opinion majority, certainly for whatever they're talking about in Congress, um, I think a lot more than that, but... Um, you know, as long as there's the filibuster and we need 60 votes to do anything, all they got to do is pick off a couple of Republicans, and that's what's happening. Um, that's why they booed John Cornyn, who's been a, a key figure in these negotiations, at the Texas, uh, at this convention. They booed, they booed him, their own senator. Um, and so, you know, I, remember I came on the show a couple weeks ago, I said, I don't think anything's going to happen. You know, I, I, I would love it, but I would be blown away if a law comes out of Congress about this, any, any law. Um, and this is how it works, right? The longer you, you negotiate, the more you let the negotiators twist in the wind like this, the more pressure can be brought to bear on them to not do the thing that you want them to do. And that's what's happening. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, and by the way, as a side, I've been following it from uh, from afar, so I haven't been following the intricacies in and out. But one of the things I saw was that Republicans are pushing, follow me in this one, David, that... Uh, one of the big things they say, this is all mental health problems, not gun problems. So we need more mental health uh, counselors, et cetera, and so forth. So then there's a faction of the Republican Party said, okay, we're willing to fund mental health, more mental health, uh, but we don't want this to increase the budget. So you have to have budget cuts to offset whatever. And I'm like, either you want to, 
Either you want to help with mental health or you don't want to help with mental health. Just start messing. With, and, and so the, the, to your point, uh, the games people play, and uh, you're right, and they booed the hell out of corn, and you didn't have the guts to tell them to shut up, give them the middle finger, and walk off the stage. And, and look, the only one who's doing that right now, effectively, uh, running for re-election is Liz Cheney. Uh, help me out. Am I correct? I think the only Republican who stands up to the mob, the Republican mob, and says, I don't care what you say. I'm not bending. You're wrong. I know you're wrong. Uh, and uh, let the chips fall where they may is Liz Cheney. Am I right on that? Can I think of anybody else? openly doing it, right? Like, um, there's a couple of them that are kind of threading the needle, like Brian Kemp, like Brian Kemp in Georgia, who Trump induced, uh, you know, endorsed David Perdue, the guy that just lost his Senate election in 2020, um, because Purdue was willing to openly embrace the conspiracy theory and Kemp wasn't. Um, but Kemp didn't go out there and be like, nope, Joe Biden is the legitimate president. You know, he won more votes in the state of Georgia for sure, 100%. He just prefers not to talk about it and to change Georgia's election laws to, to make it harder for Democrats to win. Um, but Liz Cheney is the only one willing to kind of go on national television and be like, you guys have lost it, right? It's a coup, it's an insurrection. Um, and I'm concerned that my colleagues no longer believe in democracy. Uh, no one else running in a Republican primary right now that I'm aware of is willing to take that stand. At least no one that's going to win, that's for sure. <laughs> and I, and I, it's cur- I don't know. You know, uh, I, I'll throw this to you. We talk a lot on this show about the Richard Irvin, Darren Bailey, and the Republican gubernatorial campaign. And uh, I, I believe Richard Irvin has run the worst campaign uh, that I've seen in a long, long time. And uh, I would put it to him this way. He didn't just go come right out and say, I'm an Adam Kinzinger Republican, it, which means you agree with the Republicans on everything from abortion to guns, okay, because he's a right winger, uh, but I believe in democracy. I think that's the position he should have taken. Instead, he would like, that's, why are you asking me that question? That's a question that Governor Pritzker would want me to ask. You know, it's like, you don't see the coup happening outside your door, you know? And it's, it's that chicken shit stuff, David, that, uh, that's going to, I mean, if you stand up for something, maybe you will be rewarded uh, and get elected. Uh, all right. Speaking of not standing up, uh, in the midst of uh, escalating uh, gas prices, uh, President Joe Biden has decided to make a trip uh, to Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure when he's leaving. Can't Off the top of my head, is it uh, this Saturday? I want to say, whatever. I by the time you listen to this, folks, he will either be there or have come back. Uh, and uh, David, I urge everybody to read David Ferris's uh, essay on this in uh, Newsweek. Just Google David Ferris and Newsweek. Boom, it'll pop up. It's not hard to get a hold of it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, even I uh, found it. All right, David, uh, just feel free. Go. Just give us the deep dive on uh, why you're opposed uh, to President Joe Biden making this trip to Saudi Arabia. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things I like to do in my classes when I teach Middle East politics is to do a little slideshow of every American president since FDR um, in, in a picture with, um, you know, the various uh, monarchs and um, ruthless authoritarians of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, as I always like to point out, it's the world's only country that's named after a family. Um, the, uh, the Sauds, okay, it's a, it's a family business. It's one of the most um, corrupt and authoritarian countries in the world. Um, just a, a, a full-scale dictatorship that allows almost no personal freedoms, civil or political rights for um, for women or minorities, uh, especially religious minorities. Right, it's a terrible place. 
And um, it happens to be sitting atop the world's um, most plentiful supply of, of crude oil. Um, and so for, for decades, it has, it has served um, a critical function in the global economy um, by providing oil to the global market. Um, like, um, like most oil, it, it, you know, it's, it's not like the Saudis are like, we're going to give five barrels to America and like eight barrels to Brazil. It, it just goes directly onto, onto the global oil markets, right, which we don't have direct control over. And what has been happening over the last few months um, is that when Russia invaded Ukraine and, and the U.S. and its allies placed sanctions on Russia, the supply of, of Russian oil coming onto the global oil market declined um, and the, the price of a barrel of oil has gone up. I happen to think not as much as the price of the pump has gone up, right? That's a whole, that's a whole separate issue. Um, but, um, but we've been seeing record high gra- gas prices, at least raw gas prices, um, uh, at least as of last week, um, when you adjust for inflation, gas prices were higher in the in you know two thousand eight two thousand nine that period of the of the Great Recession, um, but the reality is uh, I just paid over six dollars a gallon to fill up my car. Had I known this was coming, <laughs> I would have made very different choices about the kind of car to buy when I when I panic bought a car right before my my son was born. There was a point where my, my we had been hemming and hawing, and my wife just. Just said go, go, and do not come home without a car. That's it's just go, go to a dealership. I don't want to see you until you're until you're in a new car. Um, so anyway, uh, gas pri- high gas prices are bad for the party in power. Okay, um, because what what's happening is not just that you're paying more to fill up your car; it's that the price of all kinds of goods and services is going up because a lot of the goods that arrive in, in the stores that you buy get there by a truck. And when the cost of operating the trucks goes up, so does the price of your potato chips and, and your, your you know, cat and jack clothes that you get from Target. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but every child in America is essentially outfitted in the same clothes right now, right? There's a <laughs> line of children's clothing at Target. Uh, they, send, they send my kid home from, from, uh, from daycare in the wrong clothes. It doesn't matter because they're all wearing the same clothes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the price of that stuff goes up too, you know? Um, and when you combine that with inflation and you combine that with the, with the ri- rise in grocery prices, which really is bad, um, it really is something I'm, I'm really struggling with, honestly, uh, just, just putting food on the table. Not like um, we're going to starve, but it, it's, it's taking up a much, much higher portion of our budget than it used to. So anyway, the point is gas prices are very high. Um, and we happen to have right now, as of today, a sort of a troubled relationship with Saudi Arabia for the first time in a long time. Um, President Biden ran for the office on a promise to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state because um, the uh, de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, a guy named uh, Mohammed bin Sultan, who's known in the press as MBS, um, ordered a hit on a Washington Post journalist named Jamal Khashoggi um, in, in 2017 and just had him murdered at, at, uh, in Turkey at, the, at a consulate. Um, Khashoggi happened to have been, a, I believe, a permanent resident of the United States, Canada citizen, but, uh, but it, it caused a huge firestorm because, um, you know, MBS's fingerprints were all over this thing. Everybody knows he did it. Everybody knows he ordered it. Um, and it, and it, it, of course, didn't cause an interruption of relations with Donald Trump, who doesn't care. Um, but certainly um, Biden did care. Biden was also part of the team that negotiated. Biden was the vice president when the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran was signed, the, the Iran deal, um, that provided sanctions relief in exchange for 
various measures designed to prevent the Iranians from from building a nuclear weapon. Okay, so you have that sort of philosoph like a incipient philosophical move away from Saudi Arabia toward Iran in the Democratic Party over the last uh, over the last decade. Not like we want to become allies with the Iranians, right? Um, but uh, sort of a recognition: a lot of things the Saudis are doing are just as bad as what the Iranians are doing, including the Saudi war in Yemen, uh, where the Saudis have intervened in a civil war there, and just basically turned the, the place to dust with our weapons, um, to the point where there's a bipartisan consensus that that we should that we should cut the Saudis out of our our sort of weapons pipeline as long as they're doing what they're doing in Yemen. So relations between Biden and Saudi Arabia were frosty from the get-go. Okay. Um, most American presidents make a pilgrimage over to Saudi Arabia earlier in their presidency to kiss the ring and to ensure that the Saudis are compliant and putting the oil on markets and, and to make sure that they would respond to us when we say, like, whoa, gas prices are too high. Can you put a little bit more oil on the market to bring those prices down? This is bad for me. Um, and right now, the Saudis will not take Biden's call on this. Okay. Um, and so Biden essentially has to go over to, to Saudi Arabia and, like, bury the hatchet over, over the murder of the journalist. Um, and I assume that part of the price of this is going to be ending the negotiations with Iran of, over uh, resurrecting the Iran deal that Trump stupidly pulled us out of. Okay. Um, and I'm, uh, I've done a lot of writing over the years just questioning um, not just the moral basis for the alliance with Saudi Arabia, but the real, you know, the realist political basis of the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, Iran may not have quite as much oil, but it is a bigger country, a more influential country, um, and whose who's policy, if it's an authoritarian place, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but authoritarianism and democracy are a spectrum, right? And Iran is less authoritarian than Saudi Arabia is. Right? So there's, there's no real moral case to work with the Saudis over the Iranians. Um, and, and the Saudis have done just incredible damage by exporting their hardline uh, uh, Islamic ideology all over the world with, uh, with its sort of bottomless oil wealth. So I'm disappointed that Biden is going over there to do this because the most Saudis can do anyway is put an extra maybe million or so barrels of oil a day on the market. Um, and even when they, they've kind of already announced that they're going to do this anyway. <laughs> and the price of oil went up when they announced this because it's inadequate to, to make up for the supplies that are being, um, that are being cut off from Russia. Um, and I, I, I think a smarter move would be to just complete the negotiations with Iran, um, to get, uh, not necessarily normalize our relations with Iran, but to, um, to lift some of the sanctions, to, to increase Iranian oil production. Um, they, there's more like, they can do more than Saudi Arabia can, right? Like normal, like getting, Iran back into the market can put more, more oil on the market. And in a broader sense, Ben, we are just blowing another generational opportunity to move away from oil altogether, right? One of the things in Build Back Better would have been heavy subsidies of electric vehicles. Um, and once you're in an electric vehicle, guess what? You don't care what the price of gas is anymore, right? Like, so if you don't want the price of gas to be a political problem for you, Go pass a bill, like, you know, give people $30,000 a piece to turn in their gas car and buy an electric vehicle. Um, they're not going to be able to get that all done by November, obviously, right? But but that could be policy coming out of the Democratic Party that's not coming out of the party. So that's very frustrating. Well, there, and it, it could, we, I mean, this could be a whole show, the utter madness when it comes to uh, energy consumption uh, and our lack of foresight. And and listen, I've lived through so many of these uh, moments. I'm 
uh, I don't, you obviously, I always say this, I don't know if you were born yet, but uh, the oil embargo of 1973 or four, uh, which there were, had catastrophic impact on gas prices in this country, long lines that Americans had never experienced before. I'm wondering if the cost, you know, taking inflation from 74 or whatever uh, is is as high as today. Uh, and David, never once was there a concerted effort by the leaders in our country, the smartest people in our country to say, you know what, maybe it'd be a good idea if we became uh, independent uh, uh, in terms of our dependent on oil from uh, the Middle East or from any country and just moved away from it. Never want, in fact, if there was a referendum on it, it was 1980 when Jimmy Carter put solar pa panels on the White House uh, to signal how his intention to do just that. Ronald Reagan and the Republicans made fun of him and won with a landslide. David, this country is just determined never to learn and just be clueless to the end. And finally, one last point and get your response to this to show the utter, utter, utter madness of this. One of the leading uh, manufacturers of electric cars in this country is Tesla, which is owned by Elon Musk, who is openly embracing MAGA. I, I like, dude, your financial future. <laughs> you always think capitalists will think of their money. Either he is so rich or he's just getting out of the electric car market, or he is a complete lunatic, but he's like working against his own best self-interest by embracing a party in Texas, I might add. He moved down to Texas. That mocks <laughs> the notion of conservation, which ultimately undercuts the electric car market because a lot of that is propped up by tax credits and credit swaps that people like uh, Musk can do. Uh, with companies that don't produce electric cars. Utter freaking madness, David. I'm older than you. Do you think in your child's lifetime, this country will come to terms with the contradictions on this issue? Well, we're going to have to at some point, right? We just keep kicking the can down the road. Um, and when they, when they figured out how to extract the oil from those shale fields in the Dakotas, um, it bought these fossil fuel maniacs probably another 20 years before we're going to have to reckon with, with the reality here, which is that oil supplies are finite. Um, and eventually we are going to run into a, a problem where prices are going up and there's not going to be anyone or anything that can bring them down. Okay. Um, and it, but in terms of the, the contemporary predicament, it's, there's a line from my favorite movie is called Big Night. It's a Stanley Tucci uh, movie from 1996 uh, about two Italian immigrants running a restaurant at the Jersey Shore. Uh, and he has this line, he says, uh, First, you give the people what they want. Then you give them what you want. Okay. What Biden could do is he could work with Iran to bring down oil prices, okay? Uh, not get wiped out in November, um, ho hopefully in larger congressional majorities, and then pass real incentives to get people out of their gas cars. No one, I mean, no one outside of the Texas GOP is like philosophically committed to gas-powered vehicles. Like no one cares, right? People aren't buying EVs because they're more expensive. Um, at, up front, right? over the life of the car, they're cheaper, right? Um, but up front, there's a there's a there's a hurdle here, right? You got to get people into those cars, you got to subsidize the research to bring down all the costs, um, and then once you're once you have a, a critical mass in the electric vehicles, um, then you don't have to worry about gas prices anymore as a political problem. That's politics, right? B, it's better for the environment. Um, it doesn't solve global warming by itself. 
<laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But it's but certainly better than the setup that we have now. So, but um, you know, sometimes Democrats like to uh, like to walk the batter on a one-two count. You know what to say? All right, uh, and that's uh, a good as point as any to shift uh, to our final discussion, uh, baseball. Uh, so maybe a little levity here because they're really this doesn't this doesn't matter in the scheme of things. <laughs> but as a long-suffering White Sox fan, I couldn't believe this. So Tony Larusa, the uh, ancient uh, manager of the White Sox, that was a low blow. He's seventy-seven years old. Uh, so it's that age has nothing to do with this. Uh, I really believe that. I'm just teasing. Sorry, Tony. I apologize. So the count was one and two. Uh, that, which means non-baseball fans, there was one ball and two strikes. Now, non-baseball fans, I'm not going to assume anything. If you get three strikes, you're out. You're done batting. You, that's an out. If you get three outs in an inning, your team has to go in the field, and the other team gets the bat. So it's really good, really, really good when the pitcher has a, a count of one ball and two strikes. That's like, it's so elementary. I learned that like within the first day that I was learning baseball back in 1965 when I first started following baseball and loving it. I was like eight years old and just really, two strikes is good for the pitcher. Two strikes is bad for the batter. Tony La Russa, with the count one and two, with his pitcher, the White Sox had two strikes on the batter, ordered the pitcher to throw three consecutive balls to intentionally walk the batter. At which point, one fan watching it goes, yelled out, Tony, there were two strikes on the... <laughs> All right, David, I know you've been dying to talk about this. Uh, is this the most preposterous move you've ever seen a manager make uh, in all your years of watching baseball? Yep. Um, <laughs> I've never seen anything like this in my whole life. I have to say, I have to add, I was at the game. It was a it was a day game um, on a on a Thursday, very rare uh, day game for the White Sox, and a beautiful summer, you know, I guess spring, but summer is spring. Spring is summer now. <laughs> it's like ten thousand degrees out. We're all roasting slowly in an oven right now. Um, and uh, so I was I was at the game. It was a, one of these high scoring games where everybody was hitting home runs left and right. And uh, the, the White Sox had a reliever, rookie reliever, Bennett Bennett Sousa. I, I will confess I had not heard of this gentleman before the before the game in question, and uh, he had he had a one he had run up a one two count on a Dodgers hitter named Trey Turner. And uh, Trey Turner is an all star, um, one of the best hitters in the game. Um, and uh, you know if you could avoid pitching to him to pitch to somebody worse, I guess that'd be great. Um, on deck was Max Muncy, who's also a great player who's having a bad year because his elbow is shredded and he won't <laughs> he won't have the surgery. Um, but uh, in any case. Uh, there was a runner on first base. You know, in baseball strategy, um, you don't want to walk, you don't want to issue an intentional walk with somebody on first base. You, you want to do it when they're on second, okay? Because then you set up the double play. But the double play here is already set up, right? Um, and uh, so LaRusso decided to, to pitch to Turner, okay? So two minutes prior to that, he was like, let's pitch to Trey Turner. Let's have this rookie reliever pitch to Trey Turner. Rookie reliever proceeds to get two strikes on Trey Turner. The count is one-two. And that's when LaRusa says, I don't like the feel of this, you know? My spidey sense is tingling. Let's put the dude on first base. So he, so he walks Trey Turner completely inexplicable. The whole crowd is just like, what the heck is going on? You know, what, what, why? I've never, I've, 
I've watched a lot of baseball in my life. This is not, I don't think this is the first time this has ever happened, but it is the first time I've ever seen it in my life. Um, and uh, and so he walks Trey Turner. The pitcher's puzzled. Everyone's puzzled because Larusa likes the matchup with Muncie better, I guess. Um, and then Muncie hits a three-run homer. I, I don't know if you know this, but <laughs> if you've ever played baseball, it's extremely insulting to have one in t- uh, to be uh, the person uh, who bats ahead of the intentionally walked person. Right? It's like they're just they're mocking you. They're like, we we think so little of your offensive abilities that we would rather put a person on base. <laughs> Um, and pitch to you. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a bananas decision. The, the thing that really bothered me about it, and the reason I think that Larissa needs to retire and go to something else with his life, um, is that he just wouldn't admit that he was wrong. But in the press interviews the next day, he, I, I sent you the clips, he was like, there's no question that that was the right move, right? I mean, you guys, there's no question, right? That was what you do. That was, have you, he said, have you seen Max Muncy's numbers with a one-two count? Um, and I'm like, Tony, what does that have to do with anything? It doesn't. You don't start the next at bat with the same count, dude. Yeah. Max Muncy starts <laughs> up here at zero. You don't. I, yeah. I, it's just like um, I just think he's not a good choice to run the White Sox. Okay, uh, I was thinking back to last year when he was, you know, his first year. I think it was his first year last year, right? Um, and uh, they were talking about how he's trying to hype up the players, you know. And he's apparently told a story about D Day or something, you know. Was like, I'm not on D Day, and I came out of the ships. Uh, and I'm just thinking of these like 19 year olds from the Dominican Republic, um, you know, trying to get trying to fire them up with D-Day stories. It's like, come on, man, um, let's let's just let's get somebody with a little bit more of a modern analytical mind in there. Because the reality is, when you have two strikes, doesn't matter who you are, you're about 79 percent likely to make it out. So <laughs> it just doesn't I, make any sense. I'm going to defend uh, age in baseball. That was never a sound strategy at any time in the entire history of the game of baseball. In the year 1912, I wasn't born yet, so I can't say for certain. It would have been a stupid idea in 1912, and people would have mocked it. Uh, I think, and I've watched Tony La Russa for a long time. I remember his first stint as manager of the White Sox. I remember when he was a young man. He was young baseball manager, just out of... Uh, uh, the minor leagues, and uh, Bill Veck hired him to be the manager of the White Sox. Bill Veck owned the Sox at the time. The thing, the singular thing about Tony La Russa is he is stubborn, and he has never wanted to admit he was wrong. He always wants to admit he's right. That's a strength and a weakness, David. Uh, so it, it's infuriating. It's a little Trump-esque, I might say. You know, just no matter what the evidence is, just say you're right. He's like with the uh, Sharpie. Remember the hurricane with the Sharpie? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, I, uh, but I was, I, I, I needed to hear your take on it because I was wondering, well, maybe there's an alternative take on this that in some uh, universe of mathematics, they figured out, you know, that the percentage, uh, no, I, but it's refreshing to know uh, that, yeah, he was a lunatic. And, and you know, the funny thing is I just applauded him. I had just applauded Tony La Russa for standing with Tim Anderson uh, after uh, Josh Donaldson made those, um, tried to bait him by calling him Jackie, a reference to Jackie Robinson. Yeah, really racist. And we talked about this a lot on the show with other guests. And I defended Tony. I go, Tony stood, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm glad I had a manager who called it out for what it is. Uh, and then he follows up with this. Oh, Lord. Uh, David Ferris, we've run out of time. Thank you very much. I'm glad we ended with baseball because all the political talk was so dispiriting. 
uh, and scary and frightening that's good, well, to go to a little baseball levity, because it really is. There is really nothing ultimately, you know, damaging that's going to happen because of Tony La Russa, so it's just funny. Uh, All right, David Ferris, thank you very much. Uh, Appreciate you coming on the show. Talk to you in a couple weeks. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Drofsky. Take care, everybody. 